0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Let me ask you something. Um, how many of you uh, own a computer, have a computer in your home? Raise your hand if you have a computer. Raise your hand really, really high, really high, Okay. How many of you have no computer in your home? Raise your hand. Just let me get a, a good idea. How many of you uh, know how to operate a computer? I mean, I mean, all the way from, from uh, kindergarten level all the way up to postgraduate. Would you raise your hand? How many of you know how to work a computer? How many of you have ever heard of Microsoft Excel? Raise your hand. All right, raise your hand. How many of you have never heard of it? Raise your hand. How, how many of you never want to hear of it again? Raise your hand. Uh, You know, I, I, I started pastoring in 1983. I started preaching two years prior to that. And I look back and I wonder how preachers ever did what they did without a computer. I don't know how they ever did what they did without the Internet to research. And I don't know what they ever did without Microsoft Word to type stuff out and Microsoft PowerPoint, which is what I use to put together the slides that you see every sunday and i i turn those slides into what they call jpegs which means you can't change them and i send those to matt and matt puts them on that computer up there there's just a lot of stuff that's powerpoint i don't know how we ever worked without powerpoint and i don't know how we ever worked without excel microsoft excel is what they call a spreadsheet now for some folks that's that's not going to mean anything at all but it is a it's a uh it allows you to put numbers on a sheet and it has built in uh, formulas that you can add or subtract or multiply or get averages or divide, a lot of different things. It can do a whole lot more than I'm able to do with it. I'm pretty basic on Excel. I don't excel at Excel. But you'd be surprised how much of what we do at Palmetto Baptist Church involves. Microsoft Excel, for instance, last Sunday night, we voted on our 2014 budget. That budget was produced in Microsoft Excel. Uh, How many of you get emails from me? Raise your hand if you get emails from me. Okay, All right. Uh, How many of you, by the way, have an email address, but you you do not get emails from me? Raise your hand. Anybody? A few people. All right. how many of you wish you never got any emails from me? Raise your hand. You think I'm a telemarketer preacher or something, don't you? Yeah. I saw that hand there, Carter. Yeah. Uh. I have a, a, a Microsoft document that has all of the, uh, all of our members who have email addresses, their names, their email addresses, uh, whether they are members or not, how many family members are in their family. And so I can look on that one sheet and I can, if you, if I have your email address, I can pull up your email address. I can put it in my email and send you an email. I know exactly how many people in our active membership and attendance. Because some folks attend, but they're not members. I know about how many people attend this church on average, depending on which shift. I mean, you know, we're averaging right now sometime or somewhere around 320 to 345 in Sunday morning attendance. But did you know that if all the shifts showed up on one day, we'd have about 500 people here? I'm talking about people who regularly come. Regularly meaning... Once a month. Now that's not very regular, but I'm I got, you. You got to start somewhere, right? Anyway, I have all those email addresses in an Excel document. So not only do we pr- produce the budget through Excel, my email address database is Excel. I have an email database for church folks. I have an email database from my students at Bruton Parker. I have another email database of friends up in North Georgia where I came from and coming. I have another database of students in a little school that I teach sometimes on Monday nights. I've got a lot of email addresses. It's all in Excel. Our Sunday school and worship attendance, we count Sunday school and we count worship attendance. I have in an Excel spreadsheet the average monthly and annual attendance for Sunday school and worship for Palmetto Baptist Church all the way back to 1990. I got it in my Excel spreadsheet. And so I know. For instance, we averaged 346 in Sunday morning worship in January. This is just what we just finished, January, 346, which is higher than last year. But it's not the highest we've had in the last 10 years. But it's higher than any average we had in the 1990s. I've got all that in an Excel spreadsheet. I can tell you every year since I've been here, I can go to another document in Excel and tell you exactly what our budget was and exactly what our receipts were and exactly what our expenditures were and exactly whether or not we met budget. And all these kinds of things, all in an Excel spreadsheet. Um, do, you, do you realize how important Microsoft Excel is to what we're doing here at Palmona Bad? It's pretty important. Excel. Would you like to Excel? Some of you have computers that you haven't switched out in some time. If that's you, raise your hand. If you have your computer more than five years, raise your hand. Y'all are not telling me the truth. I know you're not. Listen, if you have a computer that's over five years old and you decide, I want a newer version of Microsoft Excel. And you go down to Best Buy or to uh, Office Depot or Office Max and you buy Excel, the, the latest version of Excel, and you go to put it on your computer. Let me tell you what's going to happen, possibly, if you have a computer that's five years old or, or older. It's going to slow you down. You know why? Because an older computer doesn't have all the minimum requirements, the, the minimum s- uh, system requirements to... F- quickly and efficiently run Microsoft Excel. Now, let me just give you a, a little bit of a, uh, some information here. This, this is going to mean nothing to most of us, including, uh, quite honestly, me, but I want to give it to you anyway. It makes me look like I know something when I really don't. For Excel 2013, you will need a computer that has a processor that is 1 gigahertz. See, there you go. You'll need a, an operating system that is either Windows 8, Windows 7, Windows 2008, R2, or Windows Server 2012. There you go. See, so if you have a computer that's five years old or older, you don't have those things. You'll also need a certain amount of computer memory. They call that random something memory. RAM. And then you'll need a hard disk space. These are the minimum system requirements. But if you read the package that you buy this stuff with, and by the way, you want to know what those minimum requirements are because if you buy any type of software, Microsoft, Excel, or anything else, and you try to put it on a computer that either doesn't have those requirements or it just barely has those requirements, you're going to slow your computer really down. In addition to that, there are some recommended requirements. They would recommend that you have a touch-enabled device, that you have extra hardware, that you have connectivity to uh, Internet, all that stuff that we don't really know what what's going on. And I'll tell you, I don't either. I'm just sharing you these things because I found them out. But here, here's I'll, if you want to know really where I am, here's really where I am. You see, in some parts of the country, including uh, me, where I grew up in the country... You see, I have to translate. The computer language is like a different kind of language, and so I have to like translate. For instance, log on, which is in, used in computers. To me, that means make the wood stove hotter. Uh, uh, log off, that means don't add no more wood. Uh, monitor, that means keep an eye on the wood stove. Download means get the firewood off the truck. Megahertz means that's what happens when you're not careful as you get the firewood off the truck and you drop it on your toe. Megahertz. And then finally, laptop, that's where the cat or the dog sleeps. So all those things that you have certain uh, definitions for, you have to relearn new definitions. It's a whole different language and you have to learn that language. But what I want you to get here is that when you're dealing with Microsoft Excel or anything in computers, there is the minimum Requirement and there are the recommended requirements. Now think about that. Two words. I want you to remember these two words. Minimum and recommended. Those are two very important words when it comes to computers. Guess what? Those are also very important words when it comes to Christian faith. When it comes to salvation and the living of the Christian life. You see, if you want to excel in the Christian faith... Not just with Microsoft software, then you need to know the minimum and the recommended requirements. So, what is the the minimum requirement? What is the minimum requirement? When it comes to salvation, what are the minimum requirements? Well, actually, the Bible tells us, and I'm thankful for this, there's only one. It's very simple. The minimum requirement is faith. Faith is the minimum requirement. We, We see this in several places. Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians that a person is made right with God, quote, not by works of the law, but through faith. Faith is receiving, believing, trusting. Faith means to put all of your hope and base it on who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us on the cross and in the resurrection. That's faith. Paul again says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says we're saved through faith, and he assures us that there is, quote, no condemnation... For those who are in Christ Jesus. He tells us again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace are you saved, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is by faith. It is free. That is it. Occasionally... Some folks, not often, thank God, there are those who come to me and they're a little irritated because when folks come down to join the church, they, think, they say, well, did you not ask them or did you not inquire to them about what sin they've committed before they joined the church? I said, no, and I'm not going to. There's only one question I'm interested in when people come to join this church, and that is, do you have a relationship with Christ? And so I will look for a, a yes answer that is credible to me, that witnesses to the fact that they have invited Christ. Listen, I don't. I, when Jesus comes to us, he, he, he takes us by faith. I, I receive him. John 1.12 says, as many as received him to them, he gave the permission, the power, the authority, the right to become children of God. So I'm not going to ask somebody what sin they've committed. Are you kidding me? We'd be here until doomsday interrogating people. All I want to know is, do you know the Lord Jesus? And that's it. Listen, that's all I care about. From that point on, the Lord will deal with folks. The Lord deals with me. The minimum requirement is faith. Now, that's what it takes to get into the Christian life. That's what it takes to become a Christian. And we don't need to make that any harder or complicated anymore. Just leave it at that. It takes faith. How do you you become a Christian? You place your faith in Jesus Christ. You receive Him as your Savior and Lord. You believe that when He died on the cross, He took your place, your sin debt, your penalty on Himself. That is faith. And that's what it takes to be saved. Some folks have a real hard time with this conversion experience, this point in time when they invite Christ to be their Savior, to, to, to save them, because they can't believe that something that valuable comes that simply. I've had somebody in the last two weeks, nothing good is for free. You get what you earn. Listen, in most cases, I would say there's a lot of truth to that, but let me tell you, in the most important thing in your life, in my life, which is salvation, it's not true. Because the most important thing you and I can ever have in life, which is eternal life through Christ, comes to us absolutely free. You just receive it like a gift. But then there are also recommended requirements. Now, keep in mind, this is where Micah comes into play. These are not things you must do in order to be saved, in order to become a Christian. These are things that the Bible teaches us we ought to do, and we ought to do them naturally as a result of having received Christ as our Savior. And so here you have this passage in Micah, and God has a problem with his people. Let me just remind you of something right here, folks. Most of the time, Old Testament and new, the problems God had were not with the folks out there. It was the folks in here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their way. No, it's not the people out there. It's not the folks up in Washington. It's not the folks out in Hollywood. It's the folks on the pew that God historically has had the most problems with. It's us. If you don't believe that, read your Bible. It's not them. It's us. And so God has a problem with us, his own people. And so he, set, he sets up a courtroom. And he has, a, he, God is, is confronting his people, us, and there's a jury. The jury is composed of the mountains and the hills. Really? That's right. Look at at verses 1 and 2. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people and he will contend with Israel. These people are His. He has a problem. He's taking them to court. God is. And the jury is all of His creation. And He starts interrogating His people. Now before I tell you what the the recommended requirements are, let me just make two points here. First of all, our adherence to God's requirements is based on what God has done for us. We ought to obey God in part because of all that God has done for us. For us. God reminds these people of all the great things he's done. He he talks about him liberating them from Egyptian slavery. He talks about giving them the gift of great leaders like like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He talks about uh, the time when Balak hired Balaam to speak on his behalf and what God did. And he talks about how God led them through that 40 year desert wilderness journey. He says, look at all I have done for you, isn't it enough? There's like a note of hurt in God's voice. Isn't is it not enough? Aren't these enough mighty and amazing acts? And so the people come back and they say, well, <laughs> it's not our fault. With what shall I come before the Lord? The Lord just won't be pleased. Should I bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands or ten thousands of rams? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Shall I just burn myself for my transgression? What does God want? And then Micah says, the Lord has told you. So first of all, God's adherence to God's requirements is based upon what God has done for us. It's also based upon what God has said to us, what God has done for us, what God has said to us. The Lord has told you, he says, what he requires. It's very simple. He said, the Lord's told you. Can't you hear your mom when you're growing up? I told you and I've told you that I told you that I told you. The Lord has told you, oh man. What he requires. And here are the recommended requirements of God's people. Once you have received him by faith, here are the recommended requirements. First of all, he says you are to act justly, you are to act justly. Verse eight, he has shown you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly or to act justly. O King James says to do justice. That command to do justice, to act justly, means to treat other people the way you want them to treat you. It means to treat people fairly. It means to treat people with equality. It means to show concern, especially, and the Bible contests this, for people who are weak, the powerless, the exploited, the abused, those who literally don't have the sense enough to take care of themselves. God says, I want you to favor those people. I'm not asking you if you like it. That's what the Scripture says. Can't read the minor prophets without realizing, and you can't read the Gospels without realizing that both Jesus and the minor prophets of the Old Testament, they favored the folks who couldn't fend for themselves. So if you have a problem with that, the problem's not with me, (laughs) just so you know. Act justly. Second, love mercy. The Hebrew word is the Hebrew word hesed. Mercy is really not the best translation of that word. A better translation is loyalty and faithfulness. Lois Verberg wrote a book called Our Our Rabbi Jesus. And here's what she says. This is is the greatest summation of what hesed, this love mercy or love faithfulness is. She said this. She says, hesed is a bone-weary father who drives through the night to bail his drug-addicted son out of jail. Hesed is a mom who spends day after thankless day spoon-feeding and wiping up after a, after a disabled child who will never be any better and there's no end in sight. Can you picture that, mother? Hesed, forgive me for saying this one, but she says it, so I'm just quoting her. Hesed is an unsung pastor's wife whose long-suffering, tearful prayers keep her exhausted husband from falling apart at the seams. Hesed is love that can be counted on decade after decade after decade. The Lord has shown you, he has told you, act justly, love mercy or faithfulness or loyalty. And then he says, and finally, walk humbly with your God. You may begin faith with a momentary decision to receive Christ, but, but if you want to excel in your Christian faith, it continues as you, as you show justice to people, as you are faithfully loyal in, in facing the challenges of life in Christ's name, and as you walk humbly with your God. You and I are not better than anybody else. And we need to realize our dependence upon God following Him, but also our dependence upon each other. We are in this body of Christ because we believe we need one another. Is that not true? Walk humbly with have God. Some Christians act like they don't need the church. That they don't need anybody else's opinion. That they don't. What in the world? We need each other. Walk humbly with your God. David McCullough wrote the book John Adams. Biography of John Adams, great book, by the way, (laughs) great book. And he quotes John Adams responding to his daughter. She made a comment about the riddles of life that she couldn't understand. Here's what John Adams said. He said, the longer I live, the more I read, the more patiently I think, and the more anxiously I inquire, the less I seem to know. So do this, he says to his daughter, do justly. Love mercy and walk humbly. That is enough. So questions and so answers your affectionate grandfather, John Adams. The minimum requirement, faith. Receive it. The recommended requirements, act justly. Love loyalty and faithfulness, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you've made salvation so simple, so sweet, so uncluttered, so uncomplicated. And that's good because some of us, myself included, need simple. But Lord, forgive so many of us who have just stopped there. We love this Salvation is free. It's a gift from God that we simply receive. We love that. What we don't like are the recommended requirements for excelling in the Christian faith. Promote justice, fairness. Live in complex faithfulness against all challenges. When there's no hope in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel. And walk humbly with our God and with our fellow mankind. Help us, in Jesus' name. Amen.